Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Our story today takes us way, way back into ancient history. But we start with writer Hannah Kirshner drinking alone at her kitchen table in Japan. So I've got a convenience store frozen pizza that I warmed up in the toaster oven, and I've opened a bottle of Japanese wine. There's some amazing wine here now, by the way. This one is from Domain Yui in Hokkaido, Japan's most northern island. It's a lightly sparkling wine that uses an indigenous grape called koshu. The wine tastes like Welch's grape juice. I guess that's because it's blended with Niagara grapes, the same ones in that white grape juice, but it reminds me also of anzu or apricot. It's really tart, so it cuts right through the grease of this processed cheese, and it balances the sweet tomato sauce. It's a perfect fit for yoshoku, Japanese interpretations of so-called Western food. For a while now, I've been obsessed with finding out what is Japanese wine, and it's taken me down some unexpected paths. I wrote about the secret history of Japanese wine for Food and Wine magazine, but there are still some questions I'm trying to answer. It's a really great article, Hannah, and there's a line in the story that stood out to me where you talk about how you've been working at a sake brewery in Japan, but that at some point, and I quote, my thoughts turn from sake to an even more ancient beverage, wine. So wine is a more ancient beverage than sake in Japan? I didn't associate Japan with winemaking until you wrote about it in the story. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people even in Japan feel that way. They think of wine as a European product, even if it's made in Japan and all over the world now. And when you think of the history of wine, what comes to mind? Well, what little I know about the history of winemaking, I know that it started in the Caucasus about 8,000 years ago in what's now the Republic of Georgia. We know because of pottery fragments that have been found there. Uh, and then from there, it spread throughout Europe and then later to places like the U.S. and Australia and South America. Right. I think that's the history that is widely accepted now. But I wanted to know, is it possible that in ancient Japan, people were making wine around the same time or even earlier? The story most often repeated is that Japanese winemaking started just about 150 years ago with the introduction of European techniques. And that is true of the modern commercial wine industry. A lot of wineries here, they look like Swiss chalets, Italian villas, or French chateaux. But I have this Kikizakeshi textbook, which is like a sommelier's manual for sake, and it briefly mentions that people in Japan fermented grapes long before any encounter with the West. And there are wild grapes called Yamabudo that grow all over Japan, so it's possible. For this story, I visited two archaeologists who believe that it started way back during the Jomon period, prehistoric Japan, the period between 14,000 and 300 BCE. That means as early, or maybe even earlier, than winemaking began in the Caucasus. What if the origin of wine wasn't only in Europe? Today on Proof, before there was sake in Japan, there might have been wine. It's also a story that could change how you think about human history.
I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Ever thought about opening your own fine dining restaurant? Or maybe you've dreamed of having your own hometown bakery full of cakes and other treats. As someone who's finishing up business school, I love daydreaming about these possibilities. No matter where you are in your culinary career, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts wants to help turn your daydreams into realities. Escoffier helps prepare students for life-changing food careers. To find out more, visit escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Japan-based journalist Hannah Kirshner takes us to the Kofu Basin, a fertile inland valley west of Tokyo. This is the heart of Japan's contemporary wine industry. Picture sunshine on vineyards with views of Mount Fuji. I've seen old ukiyo-e prints of this scene. There's a ring of mountains that protects this area from harsh storms coming off the oceans, and it's much drier than the rest of Japan. It's better suited to growing wheat and fruit than rice. That same geography that makes the Kofu Basin a good place to grow grapes now made it an appealing place for ancient people to build settlements thousands of years ago. So there have been tons of archaeological discoveries in this area that help us understand how those ancient people lived. And based on pots that have been unearthed, some archaeologists believe that those ancient people were making wine here too. My friend Kozue Kitchens, most people know her by her artist name, Cozy, she grew up here, and she told me about a guy who's an expert in these particular pots, and he's even tried making wine in them. My name is Nagasawa. Nice to meet you. This is Kosho Nagasawa, the 54th head of a Buddhist temple called Ukaizan Omyoji. It's a big temple on a busy road in a neighborhood with lots of shops and houses. Kozi and I had called ahead and asked Nagasawa-san if there was anyone else we should talk to on our quest to find out about ancient wine. He said he's the expert on Jomon wine. The Jomon period actually encompasses a lot of cultures up and down the Japanese archipelago. You were saying it's between 14,000 and 300 BCE, so that would have been around the time, elsewhere in the world, when the first humans migrated to North America. Pigs, dogs, goats, sheep, cats, they were domesticated in various places, and the ancient Greeks began to leave written records. This is a huge span of time. Right, and all over Japan during those millennia, there were these ornate pots. They're not glazed, but there's decorations sculpted with clay, patterns or animals, and a lot of them have rope-like imprints. And that's where the name Jomon comes from. It means rope-marked. Yeah, I'm looking at these pictures of these pots, Hannah, and a lot of them look pretty psychedelic. They've got these big swirling flames coming off the rim of the pot, twisted cords wrapping around and making patterns. I mean, all kinds of wild designs. I know, and some of the really wild ones are supposedly everyday cooking pots. There's clay soil all over Japan, so the Jomon people made them out of whatever kind of clay was around. They fired the pots in pits, which wouldn't get as hot as a modern kiln, but could make the vessels pretty strong. Not super watertight, but good enough to boil something over a cooking fire, or to serve food or hold offerings. But there's this one very particular kind of pot that Nagasawa-san believes was intended for wine. This is the tsuba. 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 Tsuba
、で、あの、じゃあ、with rim perforations。それで、有効つばつき時という言い方になるんですが。It's called a 有効つばつき時。A clay vessel with a perforated rim. So, let's call them perforated rim pots. He's gonna bring it. Oh, wow.、Um, he said that it's a reprint that、yeah. he made. Cozy, by the way, is a ceramicist herself. She came along with me for this whole reporting trip to help interpret. We had tea with Nagasawa san in a sitting room just beyond the entrance of his temple, where he showed us his replica of a perforated rim pot. This is, I made. It was pretty small and simple, like a really sturdy reddish brown vase. Since his university days, Nagasawa san has been interested in what Jomon people ate. He says there's a lot we can know from shells and bones left behind, even from excrement found at some sites. He studied archaeology at Hiroshima University and worked as a researcher and curator at the Yamanashi Prefecture Archaeological Museum. In his 40s, Nagasawa san had to take over the temple from his father, and he eventually gave up his position at the museum, but he still teaches sometimes and keeps up with developments in the field. Nagasawa san told us that these perforated rim pots have fascinated him for decades. These particular pots started getting attention from archaeologists about 50 years ago. Some archaeologists theorized they were actually drums and that the holes in the rim were for attaching a skin across the opening. Others thought they were for storing food or liquid and that a woven covering could be attached to the holes. If these vessels were for fermentation, the holes could allow gases to escape. Archaeologists agreed these pots must have had a special purpose, but there wasn't consensus about what that purpose was. The more Nagasawa san researched, though, the more convinced he became they were for wine. Here's why. The pots are coated outside and inside with urushi, lacquer made from the sap of urushi trees. Compared to other pots, They're made of carefully selected and sifted clay. That's more work, but results in a stronger, less porous vessel. So, the type of clay and the urushi on the inside indicate these pots were meant to hold liquid. But Jomon settlements are always found near sources of fresh water. If your camp or village is next to a river, you don't need lacquered vessels to hold water for long periods of time. A regular clay pot should be fine. There's no charring that would indicate they were used for cooking, and anyway, urushi is sensitive to heat, so you wouldn't put urushi on a pot you intended to cook with. And this part is very exciting. Inside one of these vessels, archaeologists found the seed of a wild grape. The dig where they found the seed was not far from here, in the Yatsugatake Mountains, around the northwest edge of the Kofu Basin. But at the dig, when the archaeologist pulled the seed out of the vessel, suddenly the wind picked up and the wind swept it away. What? They lost the seed? It was lost forever. They were never able to analyze it. This sounds crazy, but the wind around here can be sudden and strong. I've felt it. That was the only fruit seed found inside a vessel. The soil in this area is acidic, so organic matter deteriorates quickly. But Way up at the northern tip of Honshu, Japan's main island, there's a site called Sanai Maruyama. 
It's the largest Jomon settlement discovered in Japan with buildings, roads, burial sites, storage pits and waste pits, clay mining pits, and all kinds of tools and pottery. There's sort of a Jomon theme park there now. You can visit reproductions of pit dwellings. Picture a round room that's dug a few feet into the ground with wooden posts supporting a thatched or earthen roof. And these huge pillar-supported buildings that could have been watchtowers or shrines. You can even try on a Jomon costume and take pictures. Anyway, it's believed that early on, Sanai Maruyama was a gathering place for nomadic people. But gradually, it became a more permanent, planned settlement. And what's interesting in terms of wine are the waste pits. Some of them are full of fruit seeds. Here's Nagasawa-san. There were seeds from Yamabudo, wild mountain grapes. There were seeds from mulberry and dogwood fruit, from the tiny wild kiwi fruit of Sarunashi and silver vine. Archaeologists also found residue from those fruits on what appear to be strainers made of plant fibers. The strainers look kind of like bird's nests. Nagasawa-san says they would crush and ferment the fruit, then strain it and discard the seeds. They were making wine. And archaeologists have found fruit fly eggs at Sanai Maruyama, too. Fruit flies are attracted to fermented fruit. Nagasawa-san says that there's consensus among most archaeologists specializing in the Jomon period that Jomon people did make wine. But not everyone agrees. It depends what kind of evidence you prioritize. So did Japanese make fruit wines? It's possible. But uh, there's no clear evidence for that, archaeologically speaking or textually, at least for the you know, very ancient period. This is historian Eric C. Rath. I'm a professor of pre-modern Japanese history in the history department at the University of Kansas, and I've been studying Japanese food culture for more than 20 years. Rath has written several books about Japanese food across the centuries. Right now, he's working on a history of sake. While Nagasawa-san and other archaeologists piece together stories from artifacts, historians like Rath rely mainly on texts. I wanted to hear from a historian's perspective about the early origins of Japanese alcohol production and whether wine came before sake. It's assumed that sake making didn't start in Japan until after the widespread adoption of wet rice agriculture. I think the earliest written reference to sake is from the 8th century, in Japan, and we're not clear how it was made. Probably along similar lines as it is today, but we're really, we don't have any recipes from that period. But we know it was made with rice, and it's made with koji. What about alcohol production before that? We have records, Chinese records from the 4th century, that describe the people of Wa, which was the word given to the Japanese, And these Chinese records say that they love to drink. They love to drink alcohol. So do we know what they were drinking? No, we don't. So what is it? Is it some kind of a grain beverage? Is it a wine, a fruit wine? That's hard to prove too, because if you look at the types of fruits and grapes that are available in Japan, native, indigenous ones, they're rather small. They don't have a lot of sugar contents. So things like Yamabudo, for instance, this mountain grape, 
and raspberries and things like that. I mean, you can brew wine out of them, but it's not that easy compared to Western grapes, which if you put them in a pot, they'll naturally ferment, or you can just leave them on the vine and they'll naturally ferment. For Rath, without really clear evidence or documents of some kind, the question of whether Jomon people made wine is extremely hard to answer. But for Nagasawa-san, the archaeologist, the perforated rim pots tell a story that points clearly to wine. And one of the ways he tested his theory was to ask, could you actually make wine in one of those perforated rim pots with wild fruit native to Japan? So he tried it himself. First, he made the pot, the one he showed us. He fired it in a pit and lacquered it outside and in with urushi. He collected yamabudo, mountain grapes, and crushed them inside the pot. They're not as sweet and juicy as modern cultivated grapes, but... He's saying, if you just leave them be, after crushing them a bit, if you leave the grapes for about a week in a warm place, then they'll naturally begin to ferment. In that way, you can pretty easily make wine. But wine also depends on sugar content. And Yamabudo have low levels of sugar, so you have to somehow raise the sugar level. So then, Nagasawa-san figured out, by trial and error, that he could raise the sugar content by adding saurunashi, those little wild kiwis, or other kinds of wild fruit. He could get the sugar content of the mixture up to about 10%, which would make a wine with about 5% alcohol. That's like beer. It's not nearly as strong as the wines we have now, but it's enough to give you a nice buzz, especially if you don't drink all that often. Okay, but Jomon people wouldn't have had a way to measure the percentage of sugar or alcohol. They might not even have those concepts, right? Sure. But you don't need to measure the sugar content to notice, like, hey, when I add a handful of sarunashi to the grapes, the juice tastes sweeter. And then you might notice that the sweeter juice makes a stronger wine. And then you tell your friends, and you all pass that information to the next generation. And then people continue to make it that way. And I think it's important to remember that even though Jomon people didn't have the same technology we do now, our brains really haven't changed all that drastically since then. Presumably, Jomon people were curious, they could creatively problem-solve. They totally could have figured out how to make wine. Sure, but to play devil's advocate, just because that could have happened doesn't mean that it definitely did. Yeah, you're right. And there are still plenty of people who say, just because there's evidence of fermentation, it doesn't mean people did it on purpose. Here's historian Eric C. Rath again, with a healthy dose of skepticism. It's really hard to know if something is intentional or something happened by accident, you know, because you might have evidence that something fermented, but was it something that somebody did intentionally or did that happen accidentally? How frequent was it? We just can't say. Right, right. And did ancient hunter-gatherers even have time for making wine? I mean, when I think of hunter-gatherers, I picture these nomadic people who spent most of their time on survival, gathering wild plants and hunting game. Yeah, that's what I pictured too. If not the stereotypical image of a caveman with his club, then something like men with bows and arrows chasing wild animals, women out gathering roots and berries and herbs all day. And I never really stopped to question it. That's how most people in Japan thought of the Jomon lifestyle too until recently. Here's a Japanese middle school textbook describing the Jomon period. Take a look at this. 
Okay, let me describe this for our listeners. I see illustrations of people hunting boars and deer, gathering nuts. They're cooking in clay pots over a bonfire. And over here, there are pictures of the wild animals and plants they ate according to the season. It says, quote, During the Jomon era, due to a rise in the sea level, the shoreline became rife with fish and squid and tree nuts like chestnuts and acorns, as well as birds, deer, and wild boars were plentiful. So farming and pastoralism didn't really develop. But in the last 50 years or so, that image has begun to change. Archaeologists have started to unearth more and more evidence of agriculture and sophisticated rituals. I went to look at one of those perforated rim pots in person, the one with a grapeseed found inside and then lost. When I saw all the other objects from the same archaeological dig, my idea of how hunter-gatherers lived totally changed, and I saw how the eating habits and spiritual life of Jomon people in this region could help answer the question of whether there was wine in ancient Japan. After the break, rethinking what we know about wine and about our shared human history. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and cleanup afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey, Proof listeners, Kevin Pang here. I've got a secret to share. Mangoes are my all-time favorite fruit. I myself am Team Sliced Mango. My six-year-old, well, he's Team Hedgehog. He loves his mangoes cross-hatched and turned inside out. You know what I'm talking about. Our family loves mangoes because they're naturally sweet, tangy, and versatile. Eat them on their own, make mango lassi popsicles, dust it with chili powder, and you can even make savory dishes like mango curry chicken wings. Some recipes call for using unripe and half-ripe mangoes. Lucky for me, these amazing superfruits are available year-round. In fact, I'm going to walk out of this recording booth, head to the market, and buy a dozen mangoes right now. See you later! Oh, 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 one more thing. Be sure to visit mango.org slash proof for tantalizing recipes and to learn more about the amazing mango. And now, back to our story. Nagasawa-san suggested that my interpreter Kozi and I go meet one of his friends at the Idojiri Museum. That's where we could see that one perforated rim pot that was found with a grapeseed in it. So we drove about an hour northwest out of the Kofu Basin and up into the Yatsugatake Mountains. What a cute little museum. The museum's surrounded mostly by fields with big mountains in the distance. The one room of displays houses Jomon objects from a place called the Idojiri Ruins. Takashi Komatsu is the museum director. Komatsu-san and his colleagues here believe that Jomon people cultivated crops and practiced rituals that involved alcohol. 
probably wine or even beer. In other words, the Jomon people didn't just spend all their time in search of wild food. And as we'll see, these other activities can be interpreted as indirect evidence of winemaking. Komatsu-san showed me the pot that had the grapeseed inside, the seed that was lost. The pot was smaller than I expected, like maybe it could hold a couple of liters of liquid at most. The shape isn't that different from the pots called tsubo, used in Japan today for homemade pickles, or from the quavery earthenware believed to be used for the earliest wine in the Caucasus. On the front is a raised design of a spiral with its tail becoming an arrow that points upward. I think maybe it's a snake. This pot is part of a collection of objects from a single dwelling. Komatsu-san is saying they believe, quote, there had been a fire in the dwelling. Normally, people would have taken all their belongings with them if they moved on. But here, there was a fire. So it looks like people left in a hurry, and everything in the dwelling was left behind. That includes organic matter like food, like the grapeseed, that was carbonized by the fire, so it didn't disintegrate in the acidic soil here. There are pots with elaborate designs, something that looks like a huge mortar and pestle, and a bunch of stone tools. He's saying, during the Jomon period, people used bows and arrows. Down here, you can see an arrowhead, this small one, to hunt food. They'd also go into the woods to gather acorns. This is how Japanese people think Jomon people lived. Or rather, this is how they're taught in school. If they were primarily hunters, though, these people would have needed a lot of arrowheads, Komatsu-san says. But there were just two in this dwelling. Instead of a lot of arrowheads, the archaeologists found a lot of wedge-shaped stones. If you attach one of these stone wedges to a wooden handle with rope, it looks an awful lot like a garden hoe. Others are like the trowel you might use to dig a hole for planting seeds. Komatsu-san says, what did they use them for? They must have been tilling fields, digging dirt. That's why we think these Jomon people were already planting crops. Yes, they were hunter-gatherers, but they were also farming. At least in this area, towards the end of the Jomon period, it seems people were cultivating beans, grains, and maybe even some kind of root vegetable. And they were grinding up nuts and seeds to make these cookie-like things that were found in the same house. So you're saying Jomon people were not just surviving day-to-day on wild meats and plants they forage. They were growing food intentionally, cooking and preserving it in pretty sophisticated ways. Yeah, so making alcohol doesn't seem all that far-fetched, does it? Not at all. And it really didn't seem like it would have just happened by accident. Right, and this is where it starts to get really interesting. Most scholars agree that there is a link between agriculture and alcohol. Yeah, I've always heard about this, that alcohol making was essentially a side effect of agriculture— Once people figured out how to grow crops, they sometimes had a surplus of fruit or grain. They stored some in a crock, and some of it fermented. They noticed that the stuff made you feel funny, and they liked it. 
it was a happy accident, and then they started making alcohol on purpose. Right, that's basically the story that I knew too. But now, some anthropologists believe it happened the other way around. That the desire for alcohol and other intoxicants actually spurred agriculture. People were consuming intoxicants as part of rituals or spiritual practices, and they wanted to be able to produce more. It looks like hunter-gatherers were coming together and making wines and beers out of wild fruit and wild grains thousands and thousands of years before agriculture. This is Edward Slingerland, a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. His most recent book is called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Based on Slingerland's research on ancient societies all over the world, it would be an anomaly if the Jomon people were not making some kind of alcohol. It would be surprising if they weren't in that part of the world. And he tells me humans have been producing and consuming alcohol for as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion as a species, like 10, 20,000 years back. All over the world, people were getting drunk or high as part of spiritual practices. They wanted to be able to produce more intoxicants for these rituals. So all over the world, the first cultivated plants were things that could get you high or be made into alcohol. But wait, these intoxicants were for ritual use? How can we know about the spiritual practices of ancient people? I mean, it's not like we found books where the Jomon people wrote down what they believed. That's what I wanted to know, too. First of all, there are Jomon burial sites where they found skeletons all facing the same direction, or buried with meaningful objects, things that indicate a belief in an afterlife or ancestor worship. But when it comes to evidence more directly related to wine, Nagasawa-san, the Jomon wine expert, he said he thought Jomon people drank as part of an autumn festival or ritual, some sort of ceremony to give thanks for an abundance of food and pray for another bountiful harvest. That seems pretty universal across time and cultures. Yeah, also maybe about fertility, death and rebirth, the changing of the seasons. At the Irojiri Museum, Komatsu-san showed me a clay figurine, a dogu, this dogu is like a doll of a stout woman with wide hips and a heart-shaped face. They found her in pieces scattered around. They always find these dogu broken and scattered. They were meant to be broken, he says, as part of a ritual. Nagasawa-san mentioned it too when we visited his temple, and here's how Kozi summarized it. So when the winter was coming, mm -hmm. they consider winter as death, right? Yeah. Everything is falling apart and uh, not much to eat. Yeah. Animals go into hibernation. Yeah. And in the spring, uh, life comes back. Mm -hmm. So in order for life to come back, they pray mm -hmm. with dogu. So they broke dogus into little bits and then they throw them away in places. Mm -hmm. So they believe that these little bits like animals' bones and human bones mm -hmm. will help to reproduce new life. Komatsu-san also explained it as a symbolic scattering of seeds. There are myths all around the Pacific, and later in Japan, of a goddess being chopped up and the pieces of her body growing into crops. This particular dogu, the figure we're looking at, is famous. It's famous because it has a snake on its head. 
There are snakes and frogs on some of the perforated rim pots, too. Not on cooking pots, but on the ones they think were for wine. He's asking why they would choose these creatures. Was it because they tasted good? No. Was it because they were cute? No. In a lot of places, people have associated snakes with immortality. Snakes shed their skin again and again. They hibernate and then come back to life when it gets warm. And if you chop up a live snake, the pieces keep wriggling. And frogs, they disappear under the mud in winter and come back in spring, like a rebirth. They're associated with water and the cycles of the moon in early Chinese mythology, and the earliest Jomon people came across from China when the land masses were still connected. So why these specific symbols on these specific pots? If you wanted to signal that the pots contain something good to eat, you might pick a rabbit or a deer, a grain or a fruit. But Komatsu-san says the frogs and snakes mean the stuff inside these pots is spiritually or ritually significant. Something like, quote, special water. In other words, alcohol. Quite possibly wine. Komatsu-san says that at the Irojiri Museum, they've tried to be rigorous, studying artifacts and conducting experiments, trying to replicate the ways Jomon people might have farmed and fermented alcohol, but... He says, and I'm quoting, None of us can actually witness the ancient past, so we cannot know for sure. And it might seem like a stretch to interpret dogu and animal decorations as related to winemaking, but all over the ancient world, Ritual and intoxicants were linked. What I learned when I talked to Edward Slingerland is, this isn't just a Jomon thing, it's a human thing. For example, there's a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe, where there's this monumental architecture, huge pillars carved with animal forms. This was done by hunter-gatherers, so the site's uh, anywhere between 12, 10,000 years old. So these hunter-gatherers are coming together building these um, huge ritual sites and then feasting. So we have the remains of bones of gazelles and other animals they were eating. And then we have these big vats that held something. That something, he says, was alcohol. And there's indirect evidence like this all over the world. It looks like people were feasting, drinking, and worshiping gods or sending off the dead. And then once we get writing... Pretty much the first thing people start writing about is alcohol <laughs> and, you know, how great it is to drink and how we drink to the ancestors. I mean, the earliest writing from China, these, these poems, Book of Odes, um, is all about offering wine to the ancestors and the function of drink and also the dangers of it. So the perils of, you know, people drinking too much and it leading to political disorder if it's not regulated. So, yeah, this behavior goes back as far as any behavior we have as a species. Considering that, it would be really surprising if Jomon people weren't making wine. And we still have rituals around alcohol, right? The toast at a wedding, offerings to ancestors, communion, even just taking turns buying rounds in a bar. I think of the ways in which drinking is part of Japanese culture today. 
coworkers have end-of-year parties where they get wasted to blow off steam and bond with each other. Business deals are made or celebrated over a meal with drinks to strengthen ties. Most often these days, those drinks are beer, chew high, or whiskey highballs, or maybe imported wine. Because a lot of people see sake as an old man's drink. But it's still sake that's used for formal rituals. It's poured into cups that are placed on Shinto shrines and offered to ancestors on Buddhist altars. It's part of traditional wedding ceremonies where the couple and sometimes their parents share cups of it. And cracking open a barrel of sake is still a popular way to celebrate the grand opening of a business. Well, that last one sounds like fun. But why sake and not wine? I mean, if Jomon people were making wine, why didn't that continue? Nagasawa-san speculated that as rice agriculture spread, sake making took over. Rice became really important symbolically and economically, and even if it was only rich people that were actually eating a lot of rice, eventually it became more culturally significant than any other grain. It may be that sake was just an easier alcohol to produce large amounts of, or maybe it tasted better. So did winemaking stop entirely until it was reintroduced from Europe? I'm not so sure it did. I know an artist in rural Chiba who makes wine from Ebizuru, another kind of wild grape. And I've talked to grape farmers in Yamanashi who say people used to keep a hidden pot that they'd throw blemished or overripe fruit into to make homemade wine. Not just grapes, but other fruit too. Historian Eric C. Rath even mentioned some records of mulberry wine in Gifu, up in the mountains where it would be hard to grow rice. But There's not much record of that kind of thing because it was just something regular people did at home. Not necessarily something happening where elites were recording it in their diaries or something commercial that was kept in government records. And after 1899, it became illegal to make alcohol at home, so people kept their home brewing secret. It's hard to say, but maybe people have been doing something like that all along. Well, if that's true, I want to know what it tastes like. Yeah, me too. I've been searching for an indigenous Japanese wine, something more connected to what Jomon people could have made. It's been a while since Nagasawa-san conducted his experiments recreating Jomon wine. So I went to visit a friend of a friend who makes his own wine with Yamabudo, those wild mountain grapes. Oh wow, we're now going like up the mountain. To get there, Cozy and I drive up this super narrow winding road to the very end and park at the edge of a forest. (laughs) Minoru Oya roasts specialty coffee, and he has a place just on the other side of Mount Fuji from the Kofu Basin. Oya-san is the kind of person who likes to tinker and try doing things himself. He even used to have a punk band called the Oya Minoring Stones. These days, it's his coffee that has a cult following. His wine is just a personal project, but like coffee, it's a drink that can be really expressive of the place and person that made it. Oya-san comes out to greet us with his son, who's in his early 20s. Oya-san has a little field he's cleared on the slope above his house, and that's where he's growing the Yamabudo. He says it's easier than trying to collect them in the mountains. It's a sunny winter day, and the vines are bare now. They stretch along a horizontal trellis. Oya-san's cream-colored mutt comes to check us out, and then once she decides Cozy and I are okay, 
we all sit on the porch. Oya-san says, quote, I thought if you could make a wine unique to Japan, it might be with Yamabudo, because they grow here naturally, you know? They're native. He shows me the wine he's been making in a small crock. It's just a regular tsubo, the kind of clay crock you'd use to make umeboshi or miso at home. It holds about two liters. He says he just puts the ripe grapes in, mashes them up by hand or with a stick, and then closes the lid. He stirs it every day, and little bubbles start to form, and then he just keeps stirring and tasting. He's saying, as the sweetness goes down, the alcohol content begins to rise, and the bubbles stop forming. And then I drink some, and if the sweetness is gone, I call it done, and I strain it. Once it's done, Oya-san stores his wine in reused bottles from other wine. He offers me a taste from one of these bottles, but he warns me it's really acidic. It's about a year old, and the color is deep purple. It smells like wine. Mm. It tastes like very young. So it, like, it smells almost like Cabernet or something. Mm. But then it just tastes, tastes kind of watery and sour at the end. <laughs> but it could be good in like the summer. Instead of adding sarunashi, like the archaeologist Nagasawa-san tried, or like the Jomon people probably did, Oya-san adds a handful of raisins to get the sugar level of the juice up. Hi. Okay, this is this year's one. Wow, it's magenta. It looks like beet juice. The next one he offers me is just a few months old. It's still sweet. He tells me it's really good at the moment just when it turns to alcohol. He's saying when it's just slightly fermented, maybe 2 or 3% alcohol, it's just starting to bubble and that's really tasty. But as the sugar content continues to decline, the acidity starts to stand out. Apparently, Yamabudo is high in tartaric acid, which doesn't mellow out with fermentation. The acidity is a challenge, at least for our modern palate. It's hard to drink more than a glass of this. The other thing about Yamabudo and all of Japan's wild fruits is they don't produce a lot of juice. He says if Jomon people made wine, quote, it must have been very valuable, this thick substance that you'd have to squeeze to get the liquid out, and then you'd drink that and feel all lightheaded. I mean, that's probably why sake became more common, even though it's a much more complicated alcohol to brew, not just a single fermentation. It's an interesting observation, but Oya-san isn't trying to prove anything. He's just having fun. He says it's deeply satisfying to make his own wine, to get to drink something that he made. That does sound fun. And it probably isn't that far from something that Jomon people could have made in their clay pots. So what do you think? Did you find the answer you were looking for? Was there wine in ancient Japan? I'm convinced there was. Of course, it's possible I'm just seeing what I want to. That's always a risk. And what we know about the past, the theories about what archaeological discoveries mean, it continues to change. But from what we know now, it seems likely, even certain, that ancient winemaking did not start only in Europe, that wine does not belong just to one place or people. 
Well, all the stock of wine, Anna, and I kind of feel like pouring myself a glass right now. Well, you know, I planted some Yamabudo at my home in Japan, and I think I'm going to try making my own wine, too. I liked Oya-san's approach. <laughs> he says, quote, I just want everyone to try making it. I think it would be wonderful if everyone tried. He goes on, also, I think the fact that when you're trying to make wine, sometimes you'll succeed and sometimes you'll fail, I think that's good. It's a bit like life. That's basically what it is to be human, I think. Thanks to Hannah Kirshner for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickard. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Poynton, Chester Gwazda, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Takeshi Watanabe for getting Hannah curious about Jomon wine, to Kazooie Kitchens for interpreting and fact-checking, to Michael Thornton for translating transcripts. Thanks also to Kosho Nagasawa, Takashi Komatsu, Eric C. Rath, Edward Slingerland, and Oya Minoru for helping Hannah tell this story. Eric C. Rath's latest book is Oishi, the History of Sushi. Edward Slingerland's is Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization, and Hannah Kirshner's book is Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, the National Mango Board, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, and fresh-pressed olive oil. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>